All right, if, uh, if you're a kid in fourth through sixth grade and wants to go to Roy Jr., now's your time. You can go to the back door back there and uh, Colt's back there to greet you. All right, <clears throat> if you're not in fourth through sixth grade, let's turn uh, to Genesis chapter 39. Genesis 39. Uh, so tonight, we're, we're picking back up in the Joseph story. Uh, you know, it's kind of been really been three weeks since we've been in the story because last week, man, it's so cool. We had uh, Kilby and Greg sharing about uh, their time. It was so cool to have them here sharing. And then last week we were in Genesis, or the week four, we were in Genesis 38, but we know the story kind of took a pause on Joseph and really was focusing on uh, Judah and that crazy story with Judah and Tamar and, and how all that went down. And so really we're picking things back up with Joseph. And so just by way of reminder, or if you weren't here, you remember that Joseph, he is the trusted son. He's the favorite son. At this point, he's the youngest son. And he, he really, he had a bunch of unbelievable dreams, you know, talking about the future. And to be real, life's great for Joseph until his dreams really get him in trouble. Well, his dreams and his father's favor. And so, man, he goes out to meet his brothers one day, and you remember when his brothers see him coming from a long way off, they're like, let's just kill him. Let's, let's be rid of him and his mouth. You know, we can tell dad that a wild animal killed him out here. We'll just find his jacket conveniently. And so they put him in a pit, and just real cold, they sit down to eat lunch like nothing's happening. And they end up selling him into slavery. And that is how every great revenge movie starts. Like with a scene like that, like it really would make a great revenge movie. Y'all know that genre where, you know, somebody or their family's wronged and then they come back and meticulously and slowly kill everyone involved. That's kind of how, I'll be honest, I would watch that movie. Uh, but that's, this story goes in a way better direction. Because, man, it's crazy where the story goes from here. So I think we minimize Joseph's slavery. Like we minimize the fact that he's actually sold into slavery. He's in a pit. He's sold to these Ishmaelites. And we think, you know, we know he ends up in Potiphar's house. And Potiphar's rich. And so we picture him kind of having this soft landing into this cushy job. But in reality, his slavery didn't start out nice. Like it's slavery, slavery. It, Psalms looks back at him. And it says this, Psalm 105, it says, when he, Yahweh, summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. Listen to this description. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron until what he said came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. And it was a dark situation. We imagine Joseph just in the pit, then on a camel, then in someone's house. But, I mean, he's got an iron ring around his neck, and he's led through the desert all the way to Egypt. And at this point, you've got to picture Egypt like the, the pyramids are already standing. You know, there's temples to Anubis and Ra and Horus and Osiris. Like, there's these temples, and he's going down. The Ishmaelites are going to sell him into slavery in the city where they can make a lot of money off of him. So we'll pick it up in verse 1. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who brought him down here. Y'all remember how old Joseph is at this point? 17. 17. That is young, young. And so this is how the history of God's people in Egypt begins. 
It seems like it's just going to be a history of one guy. But, you know, there's a couple of times in history where everything funnels down to one person. You think about, of course, Adam, but also Noah. But here, again, we see God's people are funneling down to one guy here. And as he shuffles off into Egypt, he has no reason for hope, to be real. But he's got every reason for hate. But the story takes a really unexpected turn. Verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph. I want you to just pay attention to how many times that phrase is used in this passage. But the Lord is with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. So he's sold to a really influential man, but the real influence is that the Lord is with Joseph. And this enables Joseph's obedience. It, it eventually erases hate and provides hope. Now, we know that Joseph is elevated, but not immediately. He comes into the house as a slave. He becomes a successful man. So he's working hard for Potiphar. And what's crazy is he's got no incentive to work hard for Potiphar. You think he's sold into slavery? If you're sold unjustly into slavery, you're not thinking about pleasing your new master. I mean, he's got no incentive to work hard, but he does. Because we see Joseph isn't working for Potiphar. He's working for the Lord. In fact, in this verse, we see his first real uh, promotion because it says, the Lord is with Joseph and he became a successful man and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. That's really, that's his first promotion. It's subtle, but he's moved from the fields to the house. Verse three, his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused everything he did to succeed in his hands. And now there are multiple miracles here because the first one is that the Lord caused everything he did to work out. I mean, it was like everything he touched turned to gold. Everything was great. He'd sell this, I'd make a profit. He'd clean this up. Well, that's way better than we used to do it. Everything that he did was successful because the Lord was with him. This exact same phrase that's used of David, that David, the Lord was with him and the Lord caused everything he did to succeed. It's the same phrase here. But the reason that Joseph succeeded was that the Lord created the success. The Lord was with them. And this phrase, the Lord's with them, there it is again, it, it helps put everything into perspective. So the first miracle is that God caused everything he did to succeed. The second miracle is that the master recognized that. You see, his master saw that Yahweh was with him. Now, you gotta think about, it actually uses the word Yahweh, the, the, I mean, God's name. The master saw that Yahweh was with him. It's interesting that it doesn't say The master saw that the gods must have shined on him, or like something more generic. Like the master knows the name of Yahweh. He sees specifically the Hebrew God is on him. How? And I think that Joseph told him. I think Joseph was faithful to speak the name of Yahweh enough to where he's like, Yahweh must be blessing him. And I think the third blessing is God allowed these blessings on Joseph to just spill over into everything into Potiphar's house. Verse four, so Joseph found favor in Potiphar's sight and attended him. That's actually promotion number two. Attended him in, indicates like this personal, he's becoming a personal servant to him. He's put in charge of his household. He said, Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of everything that he had. So really we see three promotions. He's moved from the field to the house. Then he's moved from the house to being this guy's personal assistant. And then he's moving from being the personal assistant to the manager of everything in the house. Man, Joseph stewarded what God put in his charge. And he wasn't moaning about his state and being a slave. He's just quietly being faithful. So I think that's a lesson for us. In the hard times, be faithful. When things aren't going your way, be faithful. God sees it. 
Verse 5. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything except the food that he ate. I mean, everything. Can you imagine this? He trusts his slave so much. He promotes him, promotes him, promotes him to the point where he's like, you imagine the morning meetings in here with Joseph, and he's like, all right, Joseph, uh, how are the, the fields out there? Oh, they're great. They're good to go. Okay, but how about the horses? Uh, they were trash. I sold those. I bought some better ones. Here's some profit. Oh, oh okay. Well, how's this? That's oh, great. How's this? That's oh, great. It's going good. It's going good. It's actually better than how you had it. And eventually he's like, well, what have I got left to do in this house? And he's like, uh, you can... Uh, Check out the menu I made for tonight. You can pick from the camel or the, you know, like, what? He's, that's all he's got to do. Like, he's, man, it, Joseph's so faithful at 17 years old. And, but we got to remember, when we read this passage, like this chapter 39 takes about six minutes to read, but you can't forget, this is 11 years of Joseph's life. He spends 11 years in slavery to Potiphar. He goes in when he's 17. He goes to jail when he's 28. And then he's uh, before Pharaoh when he's, uh, when he's 30. So he spends 11 long, faithful years just serving, not complaining. All right, everything seems to be going good. He's serving. He's going good. He's promoted, promoted, promoted. All he's got, all the master's got to do is pick out what, what he wants to eat that night. And then we get the weird part at the second uh, part of verse 6. It says, now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And you're like, why? Why'd you bring that up? Why, like, the, have you noticed the Bible has a really abrupt way of announcing handsomeness? Like, with Saul, like, it's, it's like, and Saul, the son of Kish, he was the most handsome man ever. And it just keeps on going. And like, David, it'll be telling this story, and it's like, a, and he was ruddy and handsome in appearance. Like, it's, it's usually setting something up. Now, we know Joseph's mom, Rachel, is She's described in the Bible as having a nice figure and a beautiful face. It says that Rachel, in chapter 29, that Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. And here it says that Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. These are the only two people in the Bible that are described like this. And it's foreshadowing because you're like, all right, everything seems to be going pretty well for a slave. But we know here there's bad to come. So Joseph's in the house. At this point, he's served faithfully. We're going to pick up a time where 11 years in, he seems to be about 27 or 28. And it says, after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. Subtle. <laughs> you know, it's pretty bold, but probably for her, this thing's been kind of building for a while. I mean, from 17 to 28, he's been working in the house. He's a handsome young guy. I mean, every night, you know, her husband's got to be like, man, have you seen Joseph? He is, man, he's so sharp. You know how much money he made me today? He is the best. And after a while, she's like, kind of is. He's, he's kind of great. And she starts noticing more and more. So it's a, it's a slow build, it seems. But when she actually approaches him, it's very abrupt. Now, this line, lie with me, it, it probably was successful in the past, you know, with other slaves. But Joseph was no ordinary slave. But keep that in mind that Joseph was really property here. You know, it, it, he was a slave to do her will. And so it's kind of a suggestion and it's kind of a command. Lie with me. Verse 8. But Joseph refused. 
He's probably not turned down any job that his masters have told him. Hey, Joseph, can you do this? Yep, I can do that. Can you do this? Yes, I can do that. Joseph, fly with me. No. He is not ambiguous about this at all. He has not left the door open, right? There's no mixed messages on. He's not trying to spare anyone's feelings. Joseph refused, and he says to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he's put everything in my charge. He's not greater in this house than I am. That's crazy. Nor has he kept anything back from me except you because you're his wife. Here's the, here's the key phrase. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? You expect him to say Potiphar. How can I do this great wickedness? But he, he kind of gives three points to why he's not going to do this. She gives a three-word invitation, lie with me. And so he gives a little speech, and it's well thought out, if you think about it. Because he says, no, this would be an abuse to the master. This would be an offense against your marriage. But the greatest thing is, this would be wicked sin against God. And he calls it like it is. Now, for, for Potiphar's wife, it probably was not a big deal at all. She probably did not think like, what, that is, that is nothing. But for Joseph, it is a big deal. And I think there's lessons all throughout this passage for us. But I think the one here is no matter what the world says about sin, sexual or otherwise, it is a big deal. One of my new favorite pastors' name is Colin Smith. He's a Scottish guy, and he said this, the world is always in the business of coming up with fresh language to make sin more acceptable. And I call this a moment of weakness, Joseph. It's just a fling. It's just a one-time thing, Joseph. But for him, he says, this is great wickedness. We don't use that word anymore. This is great wickedness against the Lord. I think there's a twinge of fear in his language. Because I think the phrase God is with Joseph, he's with Joseph in favor, but he's also with Joseph in fear. Joseph fears the Lord, which is the beginning of this wise decision. You see, Joseph had already settled the issue in his mind. I'm sure he saw the glances leading up. I'm sure it wasn't just out of the blue like, dude, what? Like, I'm sure he saw the glances leading up, and he had already settled the issue in his mind. I will not do that. I will not do this great wickedness against God. That same pastor, Colin Smith, said, an open mind in the face of temptation makes failure inevitable. An open mind, if you leave it open, like we'll just see once we get there. Another pastor I listened to this week said, you need to know the answer before you take the test. You need to know the answer before you take the test because to be real, and y'all know this and I know this, sometimes you want to do what's right and sometimes you don't. In the moment, there's plenty of times where you just don't want to do what's right. You can't wait for your feelings to line up with obedience. This situation will come to you, maybe not in this severity, but it'll come. Plan to stand. In this moment, when temptation hits, plan ahead. Know the answer before you take the test. She says, lie with me. And he says, it would be an abuse to the master, an offense against marriage. It would be a great wicked sin against God. So the situation's over. Nope. She actually steps it up. She ratchets it up because, well, verse 10. And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her. To lie beside her or to be with her. All right, here's what I want to do. I want to just think about 
really how difficult Joseph's temptation was. All of us, no matter what your stage is in life, if you're not 28 years old anymore, no matter what it is, you face temptation every single day. What I want to do is I want to look at how difficult Joseph's temptations are because we fall for far weaker stuff. And we fall in way easier circumstances. So I want to look at eight factors that made his temptation so difficult. And look at what we can learn from that. The first one that made Joseph's temptation so difficult is that it was natural. Sex is good. It's not bad. God made it, and it's a gift. And sexual desire is good. It's not bad. And God has made the right environment for it to be enjoyed and celebrated, and that's marriage between a husband and a wife, a man and a woman. And we know sexual desire is like fire, like it's helpful, enjoyable, and beautiful when used properly, but it's devastating and destructive when it's out of its proper context. I mean, this temptation was so dangerous because Joseph's 28. He's a young man. Do you think, I mean, he's been in slavery for 11 years at this point. You think sex hadn't been on his mind? He's spending all his late 20s, I'm sorry, his late teens and his 20s in slavery and prison with no chance for marriage in the future? You think this wasn't an actual temptation for him? Like it doesn't say like, and Joseph was immune to those desires. He probably wanted this. It was natural. And here's what he doesn't do. He doesn't reason, you know, if God didn't want me to give in, he'd probably remove these temptations. That's not how it works. Paul says, as long as we live in this body, we wage war against the flesh. This temptation is natural. Second one, the temptation came when he was away from home. How often do we hear this? That someone falls when they're away from home because we feel that there's some anonymity when we're in a hotel, when we're in another city, when we're not in a normal schedule. There is nobody that's going to catch Joseph at this point. There's nobody that's going to turn him in. There's really nobody that would have batted an eye. This stuff's probably going on with other slaves in the house. Be warned, man. Temptation's going to come looking for you when you're alone and vulnerable like Joseph. Third thing that made his uh, temptation so dangerous is the temptation came when he'd been wronged. You think about that? Like, how many of us would have felt sorry for ourselves in this situation? I mean, his brothers sold him into slavery. Like, he... This is wrong, 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 wrong. I mean, he has been wrong. He could have thought, you know what? I deserve this. I have the crappiest life of any, I, I am in slavery. I, unjustly, I'm gonna do this. I deserve this. Fourth thing, the temptation came from an important woman. I mean, his, her husband is an important official. Maybe sex with her would have helped towards his freedom. It definitely wouldn't have, wouldn't have hurt his standing in the house, you know? There's no sexual harassment policy in the house. He's a possession. You think outside of the Lord, Joseph has no incentive to be pure, none. He's unmarried, and she's the boss. He would have benefited from this. It makes all the worldly sense, unless you realize that she actually is the one that's enslaved, and Joseph is actually the one that's free. The fifth one, the temptation came after an important promotion. Y'all know this. When does temptation hit? When things are going great, it's after a great worship service. It's after a great weekend with your spouse. It's, it's after a great victory when you're on a spiritual high, when you've reached a new level at work. You see, Joseph's basically in charge of this high government official's house. It's a dangerous spot. Number six, this temptation happened in part because he's good looking. This is an added temptation level. 
So I hear. <laughs> like, there, for most of us, this one's theoretical, you know, like, oh, I never thought about that. I bet that would be tough, you know, like, because, you know, we know that beauty does open doors, so I've heard. Like, it creates opportunities, but it also brings danger. Ask Sarah and Abraham. How much danger did they get into because of how beautiful Sarah was? And it's ironic that most people want to look better than they do. If God's given you the gift of beauty, you need to know there's pressures and temptations that come with this. George Lawson said this, and it's a real old English. Yeah. Hast thou beauty? (laughs) No. Uh, Hast thou beauty? Trust it not. But be modest and cautious. Do you want beauty? Be content and be thankful that you're free from the snares that often attend it. Thank you, Jesus. All right, number seven. (laughs) The temptation is so dangerous because it comes repeatedly. It comes repeatedly. It's not just one and done. It's not just like, whew, I passed the test. It's over and over and over and over, and after a while, it just wears you down. This happens on every level, every temptation, right? You just get worn down. Uh, So my birthday was a couple weeks ago, last week, and Knox, my daughter, made me flan. Y'all know what flan is? It's so good. It's this Mexican custard thing, and it is like, it's so good. And so she made me four bowls of it in the fridge, and I just, that's perfect. And so, of course, I ate a full bowl right there. Bam, you know, happy birthday. And so it was great. Well, then we put the kids to bed, and I'm like, hmm. There's three more bowls of flan in there. Just sitting in those bowls, got tinfoil over the top, say happy birthday, it's still my birthday. Uh, I'm good, I'm good, I don't need that, I don't need, bam, 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 three more bowls, here we go, just like, uh, like, we, y'all do this all, we, do, we all do this, when the temptation is just lingering, we're done, like mo- most times, you, you, whatever, it might not be flying for you, but it's something, and like, if it's, if it's in there, it's just like, psst, come here, and like, after a while, you're like, okay. <laughs> and like, I think the temptation, here's the deal. Your flesh is relentless, so you got to be too. Know what I mean? It's not going to stop. This temptation so dangerous because it's, it's just ongoing. It's repeated. The last one, number eight, is the temptation came at the perfect opportunity. So will yours. It'll be tailor-made for you. Are you ready to follow Christ and say no to a perfect opportunity to sin? I think only if our heart and desires are being daily changed by the Lord through the word. Only if we are walking with Christ. See, Joseph had a greater desire to please God than please his flesh. Now, pause. Any of these factors, one through eight, I mean, ratchet temptation up in a big way, but if you put all eight of these things together, I mean, it is the perfect storm of temptation, and that gives you an idea of the cumulative pressure that Joseph is facing. How did Joseph do that? How did he not give in? I think the key is in the repeated phrase, because God's with him, because the Lord is with him. See, we shouldn't just see this story and be like, yes, sir, yes, sir, you, yeah, he is the man. We shouldn't just... Let me read this. Joseph's success and temptation happened not because of his will, 
but God's will. Not by his power, but by God's power. Yes, Joseph had a plan, and he fought his own desires, but we're here to applaud God's plan. He succeeded because God was with him. See, Joseph could withstand crushing disappointment and family betrayal and physical slavery in a foreign land and onslaught of sexual temptation, being punished for doing what's right, a wrongful imprisonment, not because he was an exceptional man, but because God was with him. The same thing that brought Joseph success and favor brought him purity. Now, this chapter does bring a lot of motivation, but uh, it brings a lot of guilt too, right? We read this chapter, and probably if you're like me, you remember times where you didn't stand, where I didn't stand. It's so interesting. We're looking at Genesis 39, right? Or What's right before it? The Judah and Tamar story. And you wonder, why the heck is that story just like right in the middle of Joseph's story? Why is it right before Joseph's temptation? You see this, this different position because Judah, man, that story is dark. You remember that story from a couple weeks ago where he sleeps with a prostitute? Turns out it's not who he thought it was. And then he is exposed in front of everybody. Everybody knows what he's done, even though he's a hypocrite saying, we should burn her. Oh, wait, that was me. I think a lot of times we'd like to identify with Joseph in this alone but unblemished, but we often identify with Judah caught and embarrassed I think we're supposed to see Jesus in Joseph's story I don't think we're supposed to just applaud Joseph's self-control I think we're supposed to see that Jesus was tempted in every way as we are yet without sin that we're supposed to look to Jesus for our hope when we act more like Judah like when we find ourselves more like Judah because you think I heard Al Mohler once say, everybody north of puberty is a sexual sinner. <laughs> that is accurate, you know? With Christ, there's full forgiveness. No matter what you've done, full forgiveness. You know how many ways he says it? I take your sins east to west. How far is that? Just keeps going. I take your sins, the God who never forgets says, I'll remember your sin no more. Your sin disappears like a mist. Your sins are gone. So I think for us, we read a story like this. You don't need to wallow in guilt. We need to get up and run. Get up and run the race. Because God's with us. He's promised to be with us, not just for yesterday's forgiveness, but for today's hope, for today's fight. Let's get back to the story. We've got we to hustle. All right, so back to the story. She's persistent. Day after day, she's enticing. And she's, it's funny with the wording. She's making it clear that she's reasoning with Joseph because the first one was like, lie with me and now she's like okay gotta rethink gotta rethink uh lay beside me and we're not talking about sex we're not don't sleep with me just just be around me just just be with me but joseph wouldn't listen to her or be with her see he set clear boundaries for himself i want you to see joseph is successful because god's with him god is at work but joseph is still working Joseph is being faithful. He's got to do the work, right? And so he's set clear boundaries for himself. There's an old Welsh proverb that says, he who would not enter the room of sin must not sit at the door of temptation. He's setting boundaries. God's at work and Joseph is too. Verse 11. But one day, she's, she's after him day after day after day after day after day, and he's set boundaries. I'm not even going to be around her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house. She grabbed him by his garment and said, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and he ran and got out of the house. 
Now that was the perfect opportunity. Nobody in the house, nobody's gonna know. This is an ambush. I mean, she set, up, set this up most likely. She grabs him and he runs. Man, sometimes running's your only option because our reason is so often overpowered by our wants. You think about it. In the moment, wants are king. Wants win. That's obviously why we need new wants from the Holy Spirit by reading the scripture. He creates new wants in us, but they don't always line up. You're not always in the moment going to be like, I want to be pure. You know, it's gonna be, a lot of times you're like, mm, I do not want that. Sometimes running's your only option. Run to what's right when your desires deceive you. 1 Corinthians 6, flee from sexual immorality. Run from it. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Verse 13, as soon as, so she grabbed him, he ran. As soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and it fled out of the house, she yelled to the men of her household and said, see, he, Potiphar, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to lie with me. And I yelled out in a loud voice, And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and yelled out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. One rejection too many here, Joseph. You know, like she's coming back, coming back, coming back. And finally, when he runs out of the house, it's like, y'all heard that saying, was it hell hath no fury like a woman scorned? I don't know if that's true, but I know she turned from lust to fury right quick. I mean, she got mad, mad, and she didn't have to, like, take the scorched earth approach here. She didn't have to be like, you know what, I'm going to blame him for rape, but she did. And to be honest, it's a pretty genius setup by her. Look at the way she words things, all right? As soon as she saw that, she, that he had left the garment in her hand, in her hand, all right, she called out to the men of the household and said, see, he, Potiphar, has brought among us us who us me and you slaves it's like she's gathering a team me and the slaves against those guys against Potiphar and Joseph he brought in a Hebrew to laugh at us that's the purpose and that word laugh is kind of a double meaning he brought he brought him in to laugh at y'all and to molest me that was his purpose she's gathering a team against her And she's embellishing the story. At least she's telling it backwards because she says, I yelled, so he left. Nah, he left, so you yelled to try to get these guys in here. And she's like, and he left his garment here beside me. No, girl, that, that garment was in your hand. You see how she's changing? It is manipulative. Now look at what she does. This is my favorite verse. I don't know why. Uh, it's just funny. Then she laid up his garment beside her until the master came home. And she told him the same story with a twist, saying, the Hebrew servant who you've brought in among us came in to me to laugh at me. This part caught me funny because I was just thinking, like, it says she laid up his garment by her until the master came home. How long was that? Like, how long did she? Because there's no, there's no cell phones. She's not texting him being like, Hey, you on your way? Okay, I got to get this set up. You know, like she doesn't have that. So she's got to just lay there next to the garment and just be like, you know, like how long is she laying here beside this garment? Like, oh, is that him? May y'all quit coming in here. You know, just like she's laid up beside the garment until he comes home and then, oh, Potiphar. But look at what she says. The Hebrew servant 
both racist and classist here. She's making sure that she's putting herself on Potiphar's team now instead of the team slave. The Hebrew servant, all those guys are lower than me and you, Potiphar, who you brought among us, came in to laugh at me. Now, she doesn't say she softened it. Last time she said, For Potiphar did this on purpose. Now she's saying, you know, as the Hebrew, he came in to laugh at me, like sexual undertones here. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out the house. And as soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. Now, a slave assaulting his master's wife is 100% the death penalty in this world. The death penalty. Why is Potiphar not going to kill Joseph? I've heard a lot of different commentators say a lot of different things about, oh, he probably knew how his wife was. But it says he's legit mad. Like, he's angry. Seems like he believes her. Here's what I think. Joseph at this point has 11 years of faithfulness built up. He has equity. 11 years of truthfulness. 11 years of purity. Maybe he got a chance to talk to him, maybe not. But in any case... Joseph is wrongfully accused and unjustly judged. Verse 20, Joseph's master took him and put him into prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. Can you imagine? Joseph did the right thing. You're Joseph at this point. You've been sold into slavery. You're doing the right thing for 11 years, and you get accused, and now you're in prison. John Calvin says this, from that honorable position, he was thrown into prison, which was like a death sentence. He must have thought he was abandoned by God as he was constantly exposed to new dangers. He might have even imagined that God had declared himself to be his enemy. Now, I think Calvin's voicing what any of us would have likely felt, but Joseph doesn't show any signs of that line of thinking. I think he knew that God is with him. That's the way he's able to preach it to Potiphar. Verse 21, here's the phrase that pays here, but the Lord was with Joseph. There it is again, even in jail, even in jail. Even unjustly accused, even unjustly accused. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Here we go again. Man, God's grace is shining the brightest in the darkest places. And it's not just favor. It's also steadfast love. It's not just favor for folks on the outside. Joseph feels the love of God in prison. That is hopeful for us. In his darkest place, it is not just favor, it's steadfast love. And then that blessing that's on Joseph spills over again into the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in prison. What the heck? Think about how crazy that one is. And the keeper of the prison said, you prisoner are now in charge. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. He went from slave to being in charge of the slaves. Now he went from a prisoner to being in charge of the prisoners. This is God's favor. Verse 23, the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because, here's the phrase, the Lord is with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Don, when we put that slide on there, I, I just did a, just, just look at these in green. Look at how it parallels. It's the start and the end of the story. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with him. The Lord caused all he did to succeed. Look down here. The Lord is with Joseph. The Lord is with him. The Lord made it succeed. God is with them through the whole story. They're bookends of God's at work, right? We should learn in our darkest times he's with us. He's promised, Hebrews 13, I will never leave you or forsake you. So as we close here, let me just paint a picture real quick of Joseph's faithfulness that he never got to see. It's hard to do the right thing, always. 
but it's even harder when doing the right thing is against what you want to do and when it actually hurts to do the right thing. I mean, Joseph's faithfulness cost him so much, and he didn't even get to see the whole picture of what God was doing through it, but we do. If Joseph doesn't stand in the face of temptation, he doesn't end up in prison. If he doesn't end up in prison, he doesn't meet the cupbearer. If he doesn't meet the cupbearer, he doesn't meet Pharaoh. If he doesn't meet Pharaoh, he doesn't get out of jail. He doesn't get promoted. He doesn't provide food for his family. If he doesn't provide food, Judah's life isn't saved. If Judah's life isn't saved, Jesus isn't born in this line. The exodus doesn't happen. That whole picture, I mean, God could have certainly accomplished his plan through anyone else, but he invited Joseph into his plan. What are the ripple effects of your obedience? You don't know. How will your grandkids be blessed? You don't know. You'll be in the ground one day, but you'll have been used for something that outlives you. I think Joseph's faithfulness one afternoon with nobody else in the house affected history. Think about that. His faithfulness with nobody else in the house affected all of history. Your faithfulness one evening at a hotel, one night at your house, it matters. Think about where, we, where we've been in the story of Genesis. He's covered thousands of years at a lightning pace, right? 3% of Genesis is dedicated to creation. You got, I mean, Adam to Abraham is only about 15% of Genesis. Then he just hits the brakes and 30% of Genesis is dedicated to Joseph's life. Far more than anybody else. Why? I think to show us that God is at work even in the smallest details of our life, that he's with us, just like he's with Joseph. Even if your difficult times last 13 years, like Joseph's did, 13 long years of faithfulness. It took 13 years for Joseph to utter, God meant it for good. Be patient. He's working all things for good even when we don't see it. And I'll finish with this verse. Psalm 31. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait on the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for this snapshot of faithfulness. Um, God, I pray that we would not uh, hear this story and be discouraged uh, comparing our faithfulness to, uh, to Joseph's. Lord, we know that you are faithful and you gave your faithfulness to us, that you are pure and you gave your purity to us. Lord, I pray that we'd be encouraged in seeing you in this story. God, I pray that we would also be motivated to actually be faithful, that our faithfulness matters even past what we can see. We love you, Lord. Thank you for this story. In your name we pray. Amen.